0: Section 28 of The Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. The Annals, Book 3, Part 4. International Relations under Tiberius. In the meantime, as the province of Africa was continued to Junius Blysis, Servius Maluginensis, the priest of Jupiter, demanded that of Asia. He insisted that it was vainly alleged that such priests were not allowed to leave Italy, that he was under no other restrictions than that of Mars and Romulus and that, if they were admitted to the lots of provinces, why were those of Jupiter debarred? The same was neither adjudged by the authority of the people, nor in the books which assert the sacred rites. Frequently, when the priests of Jupiter were detained by sickness, or engaged, in the public, their function was supplied by the pontiffs. The function itself lay unfilled for two and seventy years together, after the death of Cornelius Merula, and yet the exercise of religion never ceased. Now, if in such a series of years religion could subsist unhurt without the creation of any such priest at all, how much easier might his absence be borne in the exercise of the proconsular power for one year? It was to satiate private peaks, if formerly the priests of Jupiter were by the chief pontiffs debarred from the government of provinces. But now, by the goodness of the gods, the chief pontus was also the chief of men, a pontiff to whom emulation, hatred, and other personal prepossessions had no access. To these his reasonings, several answers were made by Lentulus, the augur, and others, but all disagreeing, so that the result was to wait for the decision of the supreme pontiff. Tiberius, in his answer to the senate, postponing his notice of the pretensions of the priest of Jupiter, qualified the honors decreed to Drusus with the tribunicial power, and especially censured the extravagance of the proposition for golden letters as contrary to the example and usage of rome letters from drusus were likewise read and though modest in expression were construed to be full of haughtiness were all things in the roman state so miserably reversed that even a youth one just distinguished with such supreme honor deigned not to visit the gods of rome nor appear in the senate nor begin in his native city the auspices of his dignity No war detained him, he had no journey to make from remote countries, while he was only diverting himself upon the lakes and shores of Campania, and pleasure his chief avocation. With such tuition was he prepared the future ruler of humankind, that this lesson he had himself learned from the maxims of his father. In truth the emperor himself, an ancient man, might find uneasiness in living under the eye of the public, and plead a life already fatigued with age and occupations. But what, besides pride and stateliness, could obstruct Drusus? Tiberius, while he fortified the vitals of his own domination, afforded the Senate a shadow of their ancient jurisdiction, by referring to their examination petitions and claims from the provinces. For there had now prevailed amongst the Greek cities a latitude of instituting sanctuaries at pleasure. Hence the temples were filled with the most profligate fugitive slaves. Here debtors found protection against their creditors, and hither were admitted such as were pursued for capital crimes. Nor was any authority found sufficient to brindle the seditious zeal of the people, thus defending the villainies of men, as if the same were the sacred institutions of the deities. It was therefore ordered that these cities should send deputies to represent their claims. Some voluntarily relinquished the privileges which they had arbitrarily assumed. Many confided in the right, from the antiquity of their superstitions, or their service to the Roman people. Glorious to the Senate was the appearance of that day, when the grants from our ancestors, the engagements of our confederates, the ordinances of kings, such kings who had reigned as independent of the Roman power, and even when the institutions, sacred to the gods, were now all subjugated to their inspection, and their judgment free, as of old, to ratify or abolish with absolute power. First of all, the Ephesians applied, and alleged that, Diana and Apollo were not born at Delos, according to the opinion of the vulgar. In their territory flowed the river Senkris, where also stood the Ortygian grove. There the big-bellied Latana, leaning upon an olive tree, which even then remained, was delivered of these deities, and thence, by their appointment, the grove became sacred. Thither Apollo himself, after his slaughter of the Cyclops, retired for a sanctuary from the wrath of Jupiter. Soon after, the victorious Bacchus pardoned the suppliant Amazons, who sought refuge at the altar of Diana. By the concession of Hercules, when he reigned in Lydia, her temple was dignified with an augmentation of immunities, nor during the Persian monarchy were they abridged. They were next maintained by the Macedonians, and then by us. The Magnesians next asserted their claim, founded on an establishment of Lucius Scipio, confirmed by another of Scylla, the former after the defeat of Antiochus, the latter after that of Mithridates, having, as a testimony of the faith and bravery of the Magnesians, dignified their temple of the Leucophrinian Diana with the privileges of an inviolable sanctuary. After them, the Aphrodisians and Stratocenicians produced a grant from Caesar the dictator for their early services to his party, and another lately from Augustus, with a commendation inserted that, with zeal unshaken towards the Roman people, they had borne the eruptions of the Parthians. But these two people adored different deities. Ephrodisium was a city devoted to Venus, that of maintained the worship of Jupiter and of Diana Trivia. Those of Hario Caesarea exhibited claims of higher antiquity, that they possessed the Persian Diana and her temple consecrated by King Cyrus. They likewise pleaded the authorities of Perpenna, Isoricus, and of many more Roman captains, who had allowed the same sacred immunity, not to the temple only, but to the precinct two miles around it. Those of Cyprus pleaded right of sanctuary to three of their temples, the most ancient founded by Irius, to the Paphian Venus, another by his son, Amethyst, to the Amethusian Venus, the third to the Salamian Jupiter by Teucer, the son of Telemachus, after he fled from the fury of his father. The deputies, too, of the other cities were heard, but the Senate, tired with so many, and because there was a contention, begun amongst particular parties for particular cities, gave power to the consuls to search into the validity of their several pretensions, and whether in them no fraud was interwoven, with orders to lay the whole matter once more before the Senate. The consuls reported that, besides the cities already mentioned, they had found the temple of Aescalapius at Pergamos to be a genuine sanctuary. The rest claimed upon originals from the darkness of antiquity, although obscure. Smyrna particularly pleaded an oracle of Apollo, in obedience to which they had dedicated a temple to Venus Stratanesus, as did the Isle of Tenos, an oracular order from the same god, to erect to Neptune a statue and temple. Sardis urged, A later authority, namely a grant from the great Alexander, and Miletus, insisted on one from King Darius. As to the deities of these two cities, one worshipped Diana, and the other Apollo, and Crete too demanded the privilege of sanctuary to a statue of the deified Augustus. Hence, diverse orders of the senate were made, by which, though great reverence was expressed towards the deities, yet the extent of the sanctuaries was limited, and the several people were enjoined to hang up in each temple the present decree, engraved in brass, as a sacred memorial and a restraint against their lapsing, under the color of religion, into claims of superstition and preeminence. At the same time, a vehement distemper having seized Livia obliged the emperor to hasten his return to Rome. Seeing the mother and son lived hitherto in apparent unanimity, or perhaps mutually disguised their hate, for, not long before, Livia, having dedicated a statue to the deified Augustus, near the theater of Marcellus, had the name of Tiberius inscribed after her own. This he was believed to have resented heinously, as degrading the dignity of the prince, but to have smothered his resentment under dark dissimulation. Upon this occasion, therefore, the senate decreed, supplications to the gods, with the celebration of the greater Roman games, under the direction of the Pontus, the augurs, the college of fifteen, assisted by the college of seven, and the fraternity of Augustal priests. Lucius Apronius had moved, that, with the rest, might persuade the company of heralds. Tiberius opposed it, and distinguished between the jurisdiction of the priests and theirs, for that at no time had the heralds arrived to so much preeminence, but for the Augustal fraternity, they were therefore added, because they exercised a priesthood peculiar to that family for which the present vows and solemnities were made. It is no part of my purpose to trace all the votes of particular men, unless they are memorable for integrity, or for notorious infamy. This I conceive to be the principal duty of an historian, that he suppress no instance of virtue, and that by the dread of future infamy, and the censures of posterity, men may be deterred from detestable actions and prostitute speeches. In short, such was the abomination of those times, so prevailing the contagion of flattery, that not the first nobles, whose obnoxious splendor found protection and obsequiousness, but all who had been consuls, a great part of such had been praetors, and even many of the unregistered senators strove for priority in the vileness and excess of their votes. There is a tradition that Tiberius, as often as he went out of the Senate, was wont to cry out in Greek, O men prepared for bondage! Even he, who could not bear public liberty, nauseated this prostitute tameness of slaves. Hence, by degrees, they proceeded from acts of abasement to those of vengeance. Gaius Salenus, proconsul of Asia, accused by these our allies of robbing the public, was impleaded by Mamercus Scorus, once consul, Junius Otho, praetor, and Brutidius Niger, Edile. They both charged him with violating the divinity of Augustus, and with despising the majesty of Tiberius. Mamercus boasted that he had imitated the great examples of old, that Lucius Cata was accused by Scipio, Servius Galba by Cato the censor, Publius Rutilius by Marcus Scorus, as if by such crimes as these had ever been avenged by Scipio and Cato or by that very Scorus, whom this Mamercus, his great-grandson, and the reproach of his progenitors, was now disgracing by the vile occupation of an informer. The old employment of Junius Otho was that of a schoolmaster. Thence, being by the power of Sejanus created a senator, he labored by notorious attempts to triumph over the baseness of his original. Brutidius abounded in worthy accomplishments, and, had he proceeded in the upright road, was in the ready way to every the most distinguished honor but eagerness hurried him, while he pushed to surpass his first equals, afterwards his superiors, and at last his own very hopes, a course which has overwhelmed even many virtuous men, who, scorning acquirements that came slow, but attended with security, grasped at such as were sudden, though linked to destruction. Gellius Publicola and Marcus Paconius increased the number of the accusers, the former quaestor to Salenus, the other his lieutenant. Neither was it doubted, but the accused was guilty of cruelty and extortion, but he was beset with a series of hardships, dangerous even to the innocent, when, besides so many senators, his foes, he was to reply, single to the most eloquent pleaders of all Asia, chosen purposefully to accuse him, ignorant himself of pleading, and beset with capital terrors, a circumstance which disables the most practiced eloquence, neither did Tiberius spare him but with an angry voice and countenance, daunted and interrupted him with incessant questions. Nor was he allowed to refute or evade them. Nay, was often forced to confess, lest the emperor should have asked in vain. The slaves, too, of Salinas, in order to be examined by torturers, were delivered in sale to the city steward, that none of his relations might engage to insist him. When his life was thus at stake, crimes of treason were subjoined, a sure bar to all help and a seal upon their lips." Having therefore requested an interval of a few days, he dropped all defense and tried the emperor by a memorial, in which he menaced him with a public odium, and blended expostulations with prayers. Tiberius, the better to palliate by precedent his purposes against Thelanus, caused to be recited a representation from Augustus, concerning Velesius Messala, proconsul of the same province, and the decree of the Senate was made against him. He then asked Lucius Piso his opinion. Piso, after a long preface of the emperor's clemency, proposed to interdict Selenus from fire and water, and banish him into the island Gairus. The rest voted the same thing, only that Nius Luntulus moved that the estate descending from his mother Cornelia should be distinguished from his own and restored to his son. Tiberius assented, but Cornelius Dolabella, pursuing his old strain of adulation, and having first exposed the morals of Silenus, added, that no man of profligate manners, and marked with infamy, should be admitted to the lot of provinces. And of this their character the prince was to judge. Transgressions, he said, were punished by the laws. But how much more merciful would it be to prevent transgressors, more merciful to the men themselves, more to the provinces? Against this, Tiberius reasoned that in truth, he was not ignorant of the prevailing rumours concerning the conduct of Salenus. But establishments must not be built upon rumours. In the administration of provinces, many had disappointed our hopes, and many our fears. Some were, by the great weight of affairs, roused into diligence and adamant. Others degenerated and sunk under them. The prince could not, within his own view, comprise all things. Nor was it at all expedient for him to make himself answerable for the characters of other men, engaged in pursuits of ambition. Laws were therefore appointed against facts committed, because all things future are hid in uncertainty. Such were the institutions of our ancestors, that if crimes preceded, punishments were to follow. Nor should they change establishments, wisely contrived and always approved. The prince had already sufficiency of burdens, and even sufficiency of power. The authority of the laws decreased when that of the prince advanced nor was sovereignty to be exercised when the laws would serve a popular speech and the more joyfully heard as acts of popularity were rare with tiberius to it he added prudent as he was in mitigating excesses where his own proper resentments did not control him that Gyrus was an unhospitable island and devoid of human culture that in favour to the junian family and to a patrician lately of their own order they should allow him for his place of exile the isle of Cythera, that this too was the request of Torquata, the sister of Salenus, a vestal virgin of primitive sanctity. This motion prevailed. The Cyrenians were afterwards heard, and Cassius Cordus, charged by them, and impleded by Ancarius Priscus for plundering the province, was condemned. Lucius Aeneas, a Roman knight, was impeached of treason, for that, he had converted in effigies of the prince into common usages of silver, but Tiberius withstood admitting him as a criminal. Against this acquittal, Antius Capito openly declared his protest from an affected spirit of liberty, for that the emperor ought not to snatch from the fathers the power of penalties, nor ought such a mighty iniquity to pass unpunished. He indeed might be passive under his own grievances, but let him not give up the indignation of the senate, and the injuries done to the commonwealth. Tiberius considered, rather, the drift of these words than the expression, and persisted in his interposition. The infamy of Capito was the more signal, because, learned as he was in laws human and divine, he thus debased the dignity of the state and his own personal accomplishments. The next was a religious debate, in what temple to place the gift vowed by the Roman knights to fortune still the equestrian for the recovery of Livia, for, though in the city were many temples to this goddess, yet none had that title. At last it was discovered that at Antium was one thus named, and as all the religious institutions in the cities of Italy, all the temples and statues of the deities, were included in the jurisdiction and sovereignty of Rome, the gift was ordered to be presented there. While matters of religion were on foot, the answer lately deferred concerning Servius Maligonensis, priest of Jupiter, was now produced by Tiberius, who recited a statute of the pontiffs, that, when the priest of Jupiter was taken ill, he might, with the consent of the chief pontiff, be absent two nights, except on days of public sacrifices, and never more than twice in the same year. This regulation, made under Augustus, sufficiently showed that a year's absence, and the administration of provinces, were not allowed to the priest of Jupiter. He likewise quoted the example of Lucius Metellus, chief pontiff, who restrained to Rome Aulus Postumius, who was under that character. So the lot of Asia was conferred on that consular who was next in seniority to Maligonensis. During this time Lepidus asked leave of the Senate to strengthen and beautify at his expense the Basilic of Paulus, a peculiar monument of the Aemilian family, for even then it was usual with private men to be magnificent in public structures nor had Augustus blamed Taurus, Philippus, or Balbus for applying their overflowing wealth or the spoils of the enemy towards the decoration of the city and the perpetuation of their own fame. By their example, Lepidus, though but moderately rich, revived the venerable glory of his ancestors. But, as the theater of Pompey was consumed by accidental fire, Tiberius undertook to rebuild it, because none of the family were equal to the charge, and promised that it should, however be called still by the name of Pompey. At the same time he celebrated the praises of Sejanus, and to his vigilance and efforts ascribed it, that a flame so violent was stopped at one building only. Hence the fathers decreed a statue to Sejanus, to be placed under the theater of Pompey. Nor was it long after that the emperor, when he dignified Junius Blysis with the ensigns of triumph, declared that, in honor of Sejanus, he did it to Sejanus, Blysis was uncle. Yet the actions of Blytus were entitled to so much distinction, for Tacphorinus, though often repulsed was still repairing his forces in the heart of Africa, had arrived to such a pitch of arrogance that he sent ambassadors to Tiberius with demands for a settlement to himself and his army. Otherwise he threatened everlasting war. They say that upon no occasion did ever Tiberius for any insult offered himself in the Roman name, manifest a more sensible indignation, that a deserter and a robber should presume to offer terms like an equal foe, when even to Spartacus no concession was being made, received, and treated under the sanction of the public faith, while, after the slaughter of so many consular armies, he still carried, with impunity, fire, and desolation through Italy, though the commonwealth was then gasping under two mighty wars, with Sertorius and Mithridates, Much less was Tacphorinus a freebooter, to be bought off by terms of peace and concession of lands, whilst the Roman people enjoyed to the highest pitch of glory and power. Hence he commissioned Lysias to engage by the hopes of indemnity all his followers, to lay down their arms, but to get into his hands the leader himself by whatever means. So that by this pardon many were brought over and the war was forthwith prosecuted against him by stratagems not unlike his own. For as he, who in strength of men was unequal, but in arts of stealth and pillaging superior, made his incursions in separate bands, and thence, and thence could at once elude any attack of ours, and harass us by ambushes of his, so on our side three distinct routes were resolved, and three several bodies formed. Scipio, the proconsul's lieutenant, commanded on that quarter, whence Tacphirinus had made his depredations against the Lepitanians, and then his retreat amongst the Gramates. In another quarter, Blysis, the son, led a band of his own to protect the territory of the Sertensians from ravages. Between both marched the proconsul himself, with the flower of the army, erecting forts and casting up entrenchments in convenient places. By these dispositions he sorely cramped the foe, and rendered all their movements dangerous. For, whichever way they turned, still some party of the Roman forces was upon them, in front, in flank, and often at their heels, and by this means many were slain or made prisoners. This triple army was again split by Blysus into bands still smaller, and over each a centurion of tried bravery placed. Neither did he, as usual at the end of the season, draw off his forces from the field, Or disposed them into winter-quarters in the old province. But, as in the first heat of war, having raised more forts, he dispatched light-parties acquainted with the wilderness, who drove Tacferinus before them, continually shifting his huts. Till, having taken his brother, he retreated, too suddenly, however, for the good of the province, as there were still left behind instruments to rekindle the war. But Tiberius took it for concluded, and likewise granted to Blissus that he should be by the legion's saluted imperator, an ancient honor, usually done to the old Roman captains, who, upon their successful exploits for their country, were, in the shouts and vehemence of victory, thus complimented by their armies. And there have been at once several imperators, without any preeminence of one over the rest. It was a title vouchsafed to some, even by Augustus, and now, for the last time, by Tiberius to Blissus. This year died two illustrious Romans, Asinius Salonius, splendid in his relations and descent, as Marcus Agrippa and Ascinius Polio were his grandfathers. Drusus, his half-brother, and himself betrothed to the emperor's granddaughter, and Ateius Capito, already mentioned, in civil acquirements the principal man in Rome. As to descent, his grandfather was only a centurion under Sulla, but his father arrived to the praetorship, Augustus had pushed him early into the consulship, that, by the grandeur of that office, he might be set above, Astistius Labio, who excelled in equal accomplishments. For that age produced together these two ornaments apiece, but Labio preserved unstained a spirit of liberty, and thence was more the object of popular renown, while Capito gained by obsequiousness greater credit with those who bore rule. The former, as he was never suffered to rise beyond the praetorship met with matter of praise from a source of injury, to the other, with the glory of the consulate, accrued likewise the envy, and, with envy, hatred. Junia, too, now sixty-four years after the battle of Philippi, finished her course, the niece of Cato, sister of Brutus, and wife of Cassius. Her will made much noise amongst the populace, for that being immensely rich, and having honorably distinguished with legacies, almost all the great men of rome she omitted tiberius an omission which he took civilly nor hindered her panegyric from being pronounced in public nor her funeral from being celebrated with other customary solemnities before it were borne the images of 20 the most noble families the manlii the quinctii, and other names of equal lustre but superior to all shone cassius and brutus on this very account that their images were not with the rest seen now end of section 28 and end of the complete works of tacitus volume 1 translated and edited by thomas gordon